Welcome to the Carbon Stations podcast, where we speak to some of the leading figures in the emerging carbon industry. Today, our guest is Aaron Burns, Executive Director of Carbon 180, a new breed of climate NGO focused on policies that can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at gigaton scale. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, traditionally on this podcast, we try to get to know our guest's background a little better before diving headfirst into the carbon side of things. So it would be great if uh, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to join Carbon 180. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Violet. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, so uh, I grew up in Southern West Virginia and uh, as you know, when I was growing up, it wasn't something where, <clears throat> you know, carbon removal and carbon management weren't a part of my, you know, everyday life growing up at that time. Um, but certainly growing up in Southern West Virginia, you know, we have close ties to, you know, the history of coal mining in the area and the impacts of extraction industries. And so that was something that definitely shaped how I viewed the world growing up. And uh, when I was thinking about what my career might be, I ended up working in the Senate. I came to Washington, D.C., and I worked for Senator Manchin, uh, my home state senator, working on energy and labor issues for a pretty long time. And at that time, especially, I don't, I'm not sure if it's still true today, but at least in the Dem offices on the Hill, the energy and labor staffers were it was always the, that those two portfolios were always together because so much of the work that we did was tied up with the history of the coal sector and United Mine Workers and that sort of tie between um, labor and energy. And so I think it was a really unique experience in some ways to, you know, both growing up in Southern West Virginia and coming into the Senate in that way to see the, uh, you know, the work that happens, whether it's on a local level or on a federal level um, around energy is something that's very people centric, that's very much about this sort of integration of things like labor practices and how that affects the community and the economy. And so um, I got to work a little bit on carbon removal uh, in the Senate only because I, in 2015, met Noah Deitch. Uh, who was the co-founder of Carbon 180, and he came in to talk about carbon removal. I'd been working on point source carbon capture for a while and had introduced this idea, in particular at the time, of direct air capture. Um, and so I continued to work with Noah after I, I left the Senate and ended up joining Carbon 180 in, in 2018 to start the D.C. office as our first policy director. And for me, what was so exciting about carbon removal at that time in the way that Noah and John Amador, the other co-founder and others at Carbon 180 were thinking about it, was it was this entirely new field. It was something that was absolutely necessary for climate. That was the motivation. It was a climate-driven need. Uh, that's why they worked on carbon removal. That's why you would do carbon removal at all. Um, but there was an opportunity to think about how we worked on that um, in a policy space. We didn't come with, you know, however many years of history of, of, having already worked on this and navigating, you know, past organizational positions, it was really an opportunity to say, like, this is something we need. It's important for climate. And how do we want to see that scale? And then we also had the benefit of having, you know, a couple decades of clean energy and climate policy to look back to and see what was successful, you know, what wasn't successful and help inform and shape how we built and, and grew our organization. And that's also where you see a lot of the work, um, you know, a central part of what we do at Carbon 180 is 
around our environmental justice efforts and the environmental justice team and thinking about when these technologies and practices are deployed, how do you make sure that they are um, not only not uh, furthering environmental injustice, but are there ways to use these, again, technologies or practices, the deployment of things like carbon removal, not to just address climate, not to just remove the CO2 from the atmosphere, but help people, help address some of these injustices and, and support and empower communities. And so for me, it felt really tied to this opportunity to not just work on something that's really important for climate, but again, to go back to that integration of what does this mean for people? How is this going to actually be deployed and impact the communities that host these projects? Thank you. On that note, actually, would you mind breaking it down a little bit, like exactly what it is that Carbon 180's work entails? Yeah, absolutely. So in a lot of ways, I think about us as a field building organization. When we first started, carbon removal was extremely nascent. Uh, folks uh, often you know, when Noah and Gianna and others at Carbon 180 spoke to folks about carbon removal, they had explained, you know, this is what carbon removal is, or this is even the term. It's not carbon renewal, it's carbon removal. Um, and so they did a lot of different kinds of work at the time. So they convened something called the New Carbon Economy Consortium, which is a group of uh, research universities and national labs that still exist today to coordinate across research um, we had what was called our leading with soil work, which was at the time our chief scientists working with farmers and ranchers in the Mountain West to understand their barriers to implementing soil carbon health practices. We ran uh, the first cohort of our entrepreneur in residence program, which was a sort of incubator that gave rise to, uh, you know, a number of folks in the, you know, at Shoshanka Heirloom came through at Jeremy at Carbon Plan. Um, and so a lot of it was really thinking about the field building piece of this. More and more, our work is really focused on U.S. federal policy, though I still think we hold to those field building roots. Carbon removal is a public good, meaning that, you know, it's not something largely that's going to generate revenue. It's something that just has a cost. Um, and so federal policy is going to play a really central role in scaling it. And Federal policy needs to play a really central role in scaling it, not just because of that fact, the fact that it's a public good, but also because we need to scale this really well. We need to not just carbon removal. Um, we need really good carbon, removal, equitable, just and highly accountable carbon removal. And so the majority of our work today is really focused on U.S. federal policy. So we do a lot of work to work with. I'm sorry, we work closely with people who um, are what we would describe as on the ground. So that might be entrepreneurs who are working on new technologies, farmers and ranchers who are the ones who will implement, you know, things like soil carbon health practices, foresters, um, and environmental justice organizations who might host these to understand how do, what, what are those, what are the different needs of these groups and make a lot of recommendations around policy. So we played a big role, for example, in the early days back in 2018, 2019, and getting more R&D funding at the Department of Energy for carbon removal. Um, there are a few pieces of soil carbon legislation that are out there that um, our team has been working really uh, closely with legislators on. And so a lot of our work today um, is really focused on scaling U.S. federal policy to ensure that we do reach gigaton scale carbon removal. Speaking of legislation, one of the most important pieces, I think, uh, as of late is the uh, U.S. Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act. Could you please speak to that and perhaps explain why it matters so much? Yeah, thank you for this question. So we are really excited about this bill. 
When I think back to the history of carbon removal legislation, you know, again, back in 2018, 2019, a lot of the focus was on research and development that we had the National Academies report that came out with this roadmap of this is what a research agenda for negative emissions technologies in particular would look like. And there was a big push around things like appropriations and getting, you know, the first ever really dedicated dollars for carbon removal at the Department of Energy, because up until that point, there was essentially no funding going to carbon removal at the Department of Energy. And we've seen, luckily, tons of really broad support for additional R&D money. Um, But we also have to be thinking about not just things like bringing down the cost of these technologies or addressing more fundamental science barriers around these um, different practices and pathways of carbon removal. But also, again, going back to this is a public good. So how do we think about what it means to scale carbon removal? And one of the things that we're really excited about, one of the tools that we're really excited about is this idea of federal procurement, that the federal government will purchase really good carbon removal. And there are a lot of benefits to this. um, And there are, you know, this includes things like once the federal government starts buying carbon removal, this really ins- it, it requires them to set standards on what is really good carbon removal. And once they set those standards and purchase it, it also helps ensure that um, that other folks who are purchasing carbon removal, because it's something that we see happening already from private sector actors like the Frontier Advanced Market Commitment, that it also helps drive more private sector buyers into this because the federal government is going to go through this process to say, this is what is high quality carbon removal. This is what gets the sort of federal stamp of approval, um, which allows, which sort of crowds in more buyers. And so this, um, you know, early pieces of legislation like this bill that are going to, you know, start setting the stage for what's the next wave of carbon removal legislation are so important because we do have to think beyond, again, carbon removal is a public good. So we have to think about what's going to get it to scale a little bit differently than we do on other climate and clean energy technologies like, say, solar or wind, where solar and wind are producing electricity. You can buy and sell this. You're making money off of that. That largely, again, carbon removal is something that costs something. It's not making you money. It's a public good, much more like waste management. And so you have to think about new kinds of policy mechanisms to scale it. Okay. Thank you so much. In addition to all the policy related work that uh, Carbon 180 does, uh, you guys have built some pretty great tools that are available to the general public and allow anyone to track what's happening in the world of CDR as far as like government support goes. Particularly, I'm referring to the policy tracker and the funding tracker uh, on your website. And Aaron, I'd love it if you could comment on both of these tools. Yeah, thank you for asking about this. Our team uh, worked really hard on these. So uh, one of the things we want to make sure to do is make a lot of this information about what's happening on carbon removal really accessible to people. Um, and so we have, as you mentioned, two trackers. We have our carbon removal policy tracker where folks can see all of the legislation that's been introduced in the past few Congresses around carbon removal um, and uh, and also understand a bunch of really important pieces of information about each of those pieces of legislation. So the summary on what it's doing for carbon removal, the members who sponsor it, and the different types of um, carbon removal that it supports. So, you know, is this something that's supporting forestry and agriculture? Is this something that's more tech focused? Does this include funding for this? Is this bipartisan? Um, And so you can go through and get a better sense of where is Congress on this? Like, 
you know, even at a high level, understanding what what is happening on the Hill, where is there support for this? What kinds of solutions are getting the most support? And what does that support look like? Because as I mentioned, a lot of it was in the early days really focused on R&D and we're starting to see these new kinds of legislation around things like federal procurement pop up. And we're also seeing a lot more work on things like agroforestry and soil carbon, which is really exciting. And we do need more funding. We need continued, sustained, growing research and development funding and federal funding for, um, you know, all carbon removal solutions. And this funding tracker in particular, I will say, as somebody who's worked on federal appropriations for a, you know, more than a decade now, uh, it can be a little dense to try and navigate, uh, you know, what's coming out of the hill and, you know, where is funding going? And especially if you look at, you know, a lot of times I think folks, when they talk about carbon removal, unintentionally or not, you know, kind of collapse it into something like direct air capture. And so when we talk about federal funding for carbon removal, it can be easy to say, oh, we have this bucket of money at the Department of Energy for direct air capture hubs. And we have this money under this authorized program for, um, for you know, largely direct air capture or technical, a, a technological carbon removal. What can be harder to navigate is where we see funding for things like, again, soils or agroforestry come in because it's not always going to be in this sort of dedicated, you know, soil carbon removal pot. Um, and so I was really excited that our team was able to go through and sort of pull out all of this information, share sort of where we see funding. And I think the other thing that's really important here is to see where we need additional funding because it isn't, we have seen things like $3.5 billion for direct air capture hubs, which is extraordinarily exciting. And it's not going to be just direct air capture that gets us to gigaton scale. We need lots of types of carbon removal, and that's going to require federal support to bring down the cost to innovate new technologies to support deployment. And so it's exciting to see, uh, you know, where this funding is actually happening by pathway, um, by department, and not just um, make sure it's not just collapsed into, okay, there's this bucket of funding for something like direct air capture. Absolutely. I agree. Like These are really great tools and they're incredibly useful. And actually, speaking of accessible information, your newsletter is amazing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who, who on your team compiles it, but uh, a major shout out to them because it's it's highly informative. It's witty, has a brilliant touch of humor. And our team at Carbon Herald is absolutely in love with it. So um, if you're listening to this now and haven't yet subscribed, I would recommend doing so right now. And there will be a link for it. Carbon 180's website in the description. I believe it's called the carbon copy. Yes. And we also have the deep dive, which is uh, goes out less fr frequently. It's bi-monthly, but uh, goes deep on some of the policy with a more addition, like a, a deeper analysis on what's happening in policy. Excellent. Yeah. So I think that is a very important part of, uh, of what you do is like getting people to actually know what you do. But on a slightly different note, I wanted to touch on the subject of environmental justice and uh, its importance. I know that you recently partnered with XPRIZE on a report that's focused specifically on that. So could you please tell us more? OK, first of all, what environmental justice is and why it matters and then maybe share some insights as to the report. Yeah, thanks so much for this question. So, and for the shout out for our newsletter, which is fantastic. Huge shout out to the comms team and um, to everybody on our team who contributes to it weekly. So environmental justice is a movement that came out of the civil rights movement. And when we think about how we want to work on carbon removal, this was something that was, you know, re we, we sort of, early days of the policy team when there were just a, a couple of us, 
spent a lot of time thinking again about we have this opportunity to build uh, a policy program from the ground up to, you know, grow this organization in the early days. And what is important to us? You know, what is uh, how do we want to work on this? What would we be really excited to come into work and do every day? And for us, I think one of the easiest answers was that we needed to make environmental justice a, a central part of our work. And so we do have a dedicated environmental justice team. Um, they do a number of things, including we have a environmental justice re-granting program that provides multi-year grants to regional environmental justice organizations to build up their expertise and capacity on carbon removal and specifically for them to help understand, have those resources to understand carbon removal and make decisions about if and how they might want to see carbon removal deployed in the areas that they represent. And the other thing, you know, one of the other things that we've done, as you mentioned, was this report with XPRIZE. And we've worked on and off formally and informally with XPRIZE for a while on their team. And, um, you know, XPRIZE is doing a lot of work to seed the early stage ecosystem, um, these entrepreneurs who are interested in building carbon removal companies. And so we saw this opportunity to work with them and say, you know, for those folks who are going through the XPRIZE program, this is what it might look like to incorporate environmental justice into your work from day one, because that is something that is really core to whether we're talking about, you know, specific projects of not coming in and building a project in a community. And after you've made a bunch of decisions about that project, then going to inform the community or ask them for input then. It's about incorporating it from day one. And so this opportunity to work for entrepreneurs, even before they're maybe starting projects at all and just starting to think about how they're going to scale and how they're going to uh, deploy their work, this opportunity to sort of try to embed these principles around environmental justice and help shape how the carbon removal field will scale was a really exciting opportunity. It also allowed us to provide, um, you know, that information on what we've learned from working with environmental justice organizations, whether we grantees or not. Um, you know, our we have environmental justice, justice experts on our team who can come and provide that sort of uh, view and expertise to um, the the XPRIZE teams. Um, and we were able to also work with other folks in the environmental justice space who are not necessarily carbon removal people um, to bring these two communities together to talk more deeply about, again, what, a, what an equitable and just future for carbon removal could look like. Thank you. So speaking of the future of carbon removal, then perhaps like as a summary of everything that's been said so far and as a bit of a look into the future, how do you see 2024 shaping up for CDR? I think it's going to be a really exciting year for 2024. Um, a few things in particular. So one is we've got this director capture hubs program uh, we're, you know, we've got a few dozen, couple dozen uh, projects under the Director Capture Hubs program moving forward, including two of the, you know, megaton projects, the first ever megaton carbon removal projects. Um, and we're going to see sort of where the rubber meets the road here. We're going to see what it means to try to build large-scale direct air capture in the United States. And I think that that is going to be a huge learning opportunity for the whole sector and certainly for us. The I will say the second thing is we're going to see a lot of stuff that isn't direct air capture, which is exciting. For a long time, folks, when they talked about carbon removal, uh, again, meant direct air capture. When we were talking about policy for carbon removal, whether that was incentives or R&D, a lot of times we were talking about direct air capture. 
but we're seeing more and more projects that are using either new technologies or pathways. We're starting to see more of an, uh, more folks engage with land-based carbon removal, ocean-based carbon removal. Um, we have a report that came out um, last year on ocean carbon removal from my colleague, Dr. Sifeng Chen, and um, which is really fantastic. Um, and looking at the opportunities to use the ocean to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And, um, and so I think we're going to see a lot more happen outside of just direct air capture, including, again, soils, agroforestry, oceans. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot more on biomass and bikers. Um, and so we're starting to see what a really robust carbon removal field looks like that goes beyond, um, includes what goes beyond things like direct air capture. Um, and I think the other thing is that we're starting to see what that next wave of policy is going to look like. Again, the things around research and development, really essential. We need to keep doing them. And often in a lot of ways, they're the easy thing. They, you know, the Department of Energy's budget typically enjoys pretty bipartisan support. Um, and so the when we get into this next phase of, but how are we going to scale this? Because it's not just going to be the, the you know, things like the DAC Hubs program. We're going to need additional long-term policy support like federal procurement like other mechanisms that what are those going to look like? Um, and the final thing I'll say here is at the intersection of those sort of last two points is I'm really excited about the opportunities in the land sector because I think that to date, a lot of times we've thought about what is required for land-based carbon removal to scale. We think about fundamental challenges around things like, um, you know, monitoring, reporting, and verification, which is important. But a lot of the conversation I think has been trying to fit uh, land-based carbon removal into sort of tech-based policy frameworks, tax incentive, things like that. And that might not be the best way. And so I think we're going to see a lot more expansive thinking on what does, uh, you know, not just, you know, things like procurement, which are really important, but what do other ways to scale land-based carbon removal look like? And I think we're going to see a lot more resources from the field go into that. If you don't mind, I just kind of, uh, because I've been speaking to people in the, working in the soil carbon field uh, recently, so it's very fresh in my mind and I just wanted to get those specifics uh, perhaps from you. Like, what's your observation of how, how that field is developing compared to like other carbon removal methods? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So we have something called our soil carbon moonshot um, that we wrote a while back that has a set of policy recommendations and we've been working on legislation through the farm bill um, and so I think the first thing I'll say is that there is a lot of support for this there's a lot of really broad support for things like soil carbon practices I think what'll be interesting is there's a few things that are pretty different from the land from the the tech base side I think the first is sometimes we will see policies that support or practices that support carbon in soils, but aren't really primarily focused on it. That we talk about in the tech-based side, we talk about the primary purpose of this technology, say, is to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, and then there may be other co-benefits to it. Whereas in the land-based side, we won't be talking about, okay, we're doing something, you know, we're doing this conservation tillage, we're doing this other practice, and carbon just happens to be a co-benefit. And really, if tons are removed in the end, at the end of the day, like, that's what we're really going for. So there's, you know, a lot of opportunity to think about this is how does carbon removal fit in as a co-benefit to other policies, for example. I think it'll be really interesting to see how, in particular, the monitoring, reporting, and verification um, or MRV discussion 
um, really evolves in the, the land-based sector because I think you're seeing such a push in carbon removal on having really high quality MRV. And I think some of this can be tied to this idea that, you know, you're going to purchase a ton of carbon removal, for example. So you want to make sure they have really, really strong MRV. And so I think it's really intertwined with this idea of when people are thinking about soil carbon and the policies to scale it, are they assuming that it's going to be scaled in the same way as, you know, tech-based carbon removal, in which case you're going to really prioritize, you know, really rock solid uh, MRV? Or um, are you going to see it scale in different ways that are more about practice, you know, pay for practice or other types of frameworks that have a longer history in the land side. And then the other thing I'll say that I, I think of is from a policy perspective with land-based CDR that's, I think, quite different from, from tech-based CDRs. In a lot of ways, if you're talking about something like direct air capture, there's not a super long, like, political or policy history. You know, even if you say, you know, a lot of the direct air capture policy sort of came on the heels or you know, originally sort of on the back of things like point source carbon capture tech, uh, carbon capture um, policy. If you're thinking about like the 45Q tax incentive was originally developed for point source capture, uh, direct air capture was added in 2018, and we've seen the value continue to increase for that particular credit. Um, even then, carbon capture policy is not like, you know, you don't have like a hundred plus years of carbon capture policy, and you don't have. Um, you know, it's a relatively small sector when you talk compared to when you talk about, say, like the history of ag policy in the United States or the history of forestry policy in the United States and all of the people that are involved in that. And so in some ways it's going to be, is it, you know, I think ocean-based carbon removal is going to be similar where you are coming into a very different policy and political landscape than you are with something like direct air capture where people may not have ideas or opinions about this or, you know, they don't have sort of a long political or policy or voting history um, on the Hill around, uh, you know, direct air capture or point source carbon capture. Even when you come in and you're talking about soil carbon and ag policy and land policy and forestry policy, or again, like I think, again, this will be true when we think about ocean policy and how that's shaped. It has such a long, rich history, and there are a lot of different interests that are that are in that space compared to when we're thinking about what it is meant to scale, say, again, director capture policy. And so I think it's going to be a very, very different environment. We're starting to see this play out a little already around the, the farm bill, but I think that is something that will be a very different landscape for carbon removal folks, advocates, companies, et cetera, to come into compared to where we've been with again, something like director capture. And just a, a last question that's like specific for, for the different types of removals. Would you say that direct air capture still remains kind of like main focus of policy right now or considering the amount of funding that, that's that's being, you know, directed towards that? Yeah, I mean, certainly when we look at policies that have been enacted, but I think if you go back to that policy tracker and, um, you know, that we have on our website, you're going to see a lot of, policy outside of things like direct air capture. And so I think, again, you came in with this ability to say there's a little bit of a, a framework around whether it's a 45Q tax incentive or, you know, the way the Department of Energy is structured where you can authorize and fund a program at the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management to do, and it is a carbon removal program. Um, you know, they do work on things and that, the, um, you know, the uh, carbon moonshot, like they look, they look at things that aren't just, um, 
director capture, but you know, there's a, there's a sort of policy, easy sort of policy infrastructure to slot in more technological carbon removal and director capture. And so I think a lot of that has moved forward. And we've also seen things like director capture companies that have been around for a while now, you know, Climeworks, for example, has been around for quite a while. Um, so there are a lot of reasons that I think we've seen director capture policy move first. But I do think if you look at the past year or two in particular, that you're seeing so much more legislation introduced across the board. But again, I think it's also different where, you know, policy is going to largely go through the farm bill. So there's larger farm bill processes versus something where, you know, the farm bill process is very different than just, say, the appropriations process for the Department of Energy, for example. Um, and so the timelines are the, and these are going to be different. But I do think um, and, and I think, again, if you look at project deployment in the U.S., that you're going to see a lot of tons being removed from things that aren't direct air capture. Thank you so much for uh, taking that deeper dive uh, with me. One last question before we finish up uh, the episode. Are there any major announcements or developments that Carbon 180 has in the pipeline that you're already capable of sharing with us? Uh, yeah, thanks so much for asking this question, Violet. So um, we do have, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the CDR Leadership Act, uh, we have an upcoming report on carbon removal procurement that's coming out that we're really excited about. I also mentioned uh, one of the big parts of our environmental justice work has been regranting this idea that, you know, part of our job in the space is to provide direct resources, financial and otherwise, to environmental justice organizations who want to learn more or build their capacity on carbon removal. And so we're continuing that regranting program. So we'll have um, that's going to continue this year. We might be able to share more soon on, um, on, you know, groups that we're working with and what that looks like. Um, and we'll be releasing our director capture curriculum as well. So, uh, a few things coming out in the next couple of months. Excellent. I'm excited about all these new developments. It does sound like a very busy year ahead. Erin, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share so much of your knowledge about carbon removal in the U.S. and, uh, all the valuable work that Carbon 180 is doing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Violet. If you enjoyed this episode of the Carbon Stations podcast and would like to hear more conversations like this, please be sure to subscribe. We really appreciate the support.